Environmental problems are hard to solve, and solving them is made even harder because of the way our government makes decisions. Environmental decisions are often made using a cost-benefit analysis. What's the cost in absolute dollars, and what is the projected benefit in absolute dollars? Not surprisingly, this kind of sole focus on financial impacts usually means decisions end up benefiting corporations which can make profits, while the costs end up being paid by individuals, often with their health, and sometimes with their lives. This is how we make environmental decisions in this country. This is why things are not getting better. And this is Green Street. Hello again, and welcome to Green Street, the environmental health show. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of scientists, medical professionals, authors, reporters, advocates, and sometimes even politicians who can help you understand a little more about what is actually going on around you and how you and your family can live a safer, healthier life in this increasingly toxic world. If you're a regular listener to Green Street, it's probably not a surprise that our government is not very good at protecting us from things that can make us sick or inflict real harm on the environment. Money rules in Washington, and that's all you really need to know if you're curious about why dangerous chemicals remain on the market even after being proven harmful. Our decision-making process is completely broken. In the past few months on Green Street, we've talked a lot about the failures of the EPA, the FDA, and even the FCC, and how chemicals like PFAS or glyphosate can continue to be sold, or how something like wireless radiation from antennas and devices can grow exponentially while the government has completely failed to evaluate the recent science showing harm at levels below current exposure guidelines. Our decision-making process is the subject of our Green Street show today, and our guest, award-winning writer Peter Montague, has spent a lifetime analyzing and dissecting that process. And Peter will join us right here on Green Street after Patty and the Green Street News. What is new in the world of environmental news this week? Well, there's a lot of news in the environmental world, but I have three good articles that I think will be interesting um, for our listeners. The first one is a New York Times article written by Anne Barnard, and it is entitled, New York City's Gas Ban Takes Fight Against Climate Change to the Kitchen. New York City will ban gas-powered heaters, stoves, and water boilers in all new buildings, a move that will significantly affect real estate development and construction in the nation's largest city and could influence how cities around the world seek to reduce the burning of fossil fuels, which drives climate change. The City Council approved a bill banning gas hookups in new buildings, effectively requiring all-electric heating and cooking. The ban takes effect in December of 2023 for buildings under seven stories and for taller buildings developers negotiated to delay until 2027. New York will be the largest American city to enact such a law, though New Yorkers currently attached to the blue flames of their gas stoves and their cozy gas-powered heaters will not be affected unless they move to a new building. State lawmakers have proposed a measure to ban gas infrastructure in all new buildings starting in 2024, but a vote has not yet been scheduled. Until recently, gas was promoted as the cleanest option for heating, and proponents had to convince lawmakers that new and quickly improving electric technologies could heat and cook as well, and at least as cheaply. 
The proposal gained momentum from a year-long grassroots campaign, from candidates running on climate issues for city and state office, and from growing concerns about storms, floods, and fires. It also drew support from less predictable quarters, independent energy analysts, real estate businesses betting on green development, and even consolidated Edison, which, unlike National Grid, the city's other main utility, supplies electricity within New York City as well as gas. Con Ed, along with proponents like the Urban Green Council, a nonprofit group that promotes sustainable building, argued in council hearings that the city's grid could handle the increase, partly because its biggest drains come in summer from air conditioning. The shift to electric heating actually has the potential to reduce demand in summers, the group's analysts argued, because many builders are expected to turn to heat pumps, which are already common in Europe and which both heat and cool spaces and use less energy than air conditioners. Quote, to my mind, this new law would be the beginning of the end of the fossil fuel industry in America's biggest city and a world capital, said Pete Sikora, the climate director of New York Communities for Change, which is part of a coalition of community and environmental groups whose year-long campaign of street protests and rallies helped bring council members on board. New York City is responsible for 5% of gas burned in buildings nationwide, which is huge. A recent study by the think tank RMI found that the law would prevent 2.1 million tons of carbon emissions by 2040, equivalent to what 450,000 cars spew in a year, and save electricity consumers several hundred million dollars in gas connections whose costs are passed on to them. Done. Amazing. You know, that's, that's really terrific news. And it reminds me, you know, these these kinds of articles remind me that there are a whole lot of really good people out there working hard on these issues. Sometimes you get discouraged. You know, you read the headlines and it looks like things are going badly. But right. this and is terrific. And of course, terrific. there's always, you know, there's a delay in the implementation. Yeah, of that's, course. That's always there. But eventually it will happen. And of course, it's just for new buildings, not for existing buildings. You think about the number of existing buildings with gas hookups. It's a lot. Sure. Yeah. But... New buildings in New York City will require this no-gas hookup, and yeah. I think that it's, it's great. I agree. It's moving in the right direction. Okay, good news. What else? Okay, so my next article is from NPR, uh, written by Ted Warren, and the title is GMO is Out, Bioengineered is In, as New U.S. Food Labeling Rules Take Effect. Say goodbye to GMOs. The new term for foods created with a boost from science is bioengineered. As of January 1, food manufacturers, importers, and retailers in the U.S. will comply with a new national labeling standard for food that's been genetically modified in a way that isn't possible through natural growth. Consumers will begin to see labels on some foods that say bioengineered or derived from bioengineering as the new federal standard takes hold and replaces the former patchwork of state-level requirements. The change has been several years in the making. In 2016, Congress passed a law to establish a national benchmark for the labeling of genetically modified food in an attempt to give people more information about what they eat and standardize labels across the country. Sonny Perdue, who served as Agriculture Secretary during the Trump administration, announced the regulations in 2018. 
But critics say the rules devised by the U.S. Department of Agriculture will actually confuse consumers further and make it harder to know what's in any given product. One advocacy group has even sued the USDA to try to block the new regulations from taking effect. Some commonly bioengineered foods include corn, canola, soybeans, and sugar beets. Most GMO crops are used for animal feed, according to the Food and Drug Administration, but they are also used to make ingredients that routinely find their way into human diets, such as cornstarch, corn syrup, canola oil, and granulated sugar. The USDA says that the list of items on its website isn't exhaustive and that other foods with genetic modifications will be subject to the labeling rules. Companies with products that qualify as bioengineered can comply with the new standard in several ways. They can include text on food packages that says bioengineered food or contains a bioengineered food ingredient. They can also use two logos that are approved by the USDA. Finally, they can include a QR code for consumers to scan or a phone number for them to text that will provide more information about that food item. The new standard applies to genetically modified foods as well as foods with genetically modified ingredients that are detectable, quote-unquote, by certain standards. Shoppers who suspect an unlabeled item is actually a bioengineered food can file a complaint with the USDA's Agricultural Marketing Service. Establishments like restaurants don't have to comply with a new rule, but they can do so voluntarily. The Center for Food Safety, one advocacy group opposed to the new standard, says it makes it easier for companies to conceal what's in their products and leaves consumers in the dark. Quote, these regulations are not about informing the public, but rather designed to allow corporations to hide their use of genetically engineered ingredients from their customers, end quote, said Andrew Kimbrell, executive director of the Center for Food Safety. The group has sued the USDA in federal court in an attempt to block the new rules. The case remains ongoing. The new standard doesn't allow producers to use more common labeling terms like GMO, the lawsuit argues, and it will leave out many foods that are highly refined or contain levels of bioengineered ingredients that aren't detectable, such as sodas and cooking oils. The group estimates that the majority of genetically modified foods are processed items with genetically modified ingredients. Additionally, the new standard discriminates against the poor, the elderly, people who live in rural areas, and minorities who may lack a smartphone or access to the Internet, the group said. It also puts an undue burden on shoppers to scan food items in stores during a deadly pandemic. The USDA declined to comment for this story, citing a pending lawsuit, but a spokesperson for the agency told The Post that the new rules are meant to balance the desire to keep consumers better informed with the interest of minimizing costs for producers. Despite other criticism, groups such as the American Soybean Association and the National Corn Growers Association praised the new standard when it was announced in 2018, saying it would create more transparency in the food industry. You've got to always be worried what? when the American Soybean Association and the National Corn Growers Association loves this new standard. I was just going to say, if they love it, there must be a real problem. So that's too bad. Well, you know, the idea that people are going to scan a QR code in the middle of a grocery store to find out whether the product or has... text has GMO ingredients yeah, is a text little silly. Or the company, the manufacturer of the product, you're going to text them with your phone from the store, the grocery store aisle? 
I remember when this was happening a few years ago, 2018, when they were actually looking at their logos and deciding yeah. which logo to use. I mean, the logos make it look like it's great. It's got yeah. the sunshine. You know, it's got a beautiful sun. It's got, you know, pictures of corn growing in the field and so on. It makes it look like, wow, this is something that we want. Wow. All right. And you have to remind yourself of one thing. Whenever you think about this genetically modified stuff, you have to understand that these are Roundup Ready crops. Right. Right? Yeah. So that means that you're also getting glyphosate from Roundup yeah, we talked in these foods. We talked last week with Stephanie Seneff about, yeah. about uh, yeah. that problem. It's, okay. It's, 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 it's not good. No, it's no, not good. It's not a good thing. Okay. My last article was published in The Guardian. And it was written by Mabel Banfield, and the title is Tumble Dryers Found to Be a Leading Source of Microfiber Air Pollution. A single tumble dryer could be responsible for releasing 120 million microplastic fibers into the air each year, a study has found. Tumble dryers are one of the main sources of microfiber pollution in the atmosphere. Microfibers are a common group of microplastics, plastic pieces less than 5 millimeters in length. During washing and drying, friction causes materials to shed these fibers. And because of their small size, many slip through the filters in tumble dryers and are released into the environment, where they have been found in our water, food, and even in the placentas of unborn babies. These tiny plastic particles have been found in even the most remote regions from the Arctic to high up in the Earth's troposphere. Researchers from the Department of Chemistry at City University of Hong Kong tumbled dried polyester and cotton clothes in separate 15-minute cycles and measured how many microfibers were released through the vent. While natural materials such as cotton shed fibers too, they can be digested by animals and decompose in the environment relatively quickly. The researchers also designed simple filters that prevent microplastics being dispersed from washing machines and are in the process of designing a similar system for trumbull dryers. These filter systems effectively remove most of the microfibers from the laundry. However, it is still unclear where these microplastics would end up when the filters were cleaned. If people just put these fibers into the dustbin, some of the fibers will be released back into the air. And even with widespread use of these filters, microfibers will still be pervasive until the clothing industry uses more environmentally friendly fabrics. Manufacturers need to make textiles and clothing that are more resistant to wear. Microfibers are inhaled and ingested by humans and animals every day. These plastics are known to harm wildlife, and studies are beginning to uncover the damaging health consequences they have on humans. In 2021, scientists found microplastics cause damage to human cells in the laboratory. These tiny fibers have also been linked to intestinal inflammation and other gut problems. The researchers hope that their findings would help raise the alarm and trigger more innovation to tackle this problem. I've been talking a lot about microfibers coming out of the washing machine and being, yeah. you know, transferred into, you know, surface waters or wherever that wastewater goes. So we know that we have these micro microplastics in the water. Well, and they're developing filters for that and developing right. maybe and filters for the dryers as well. Right, and that's what they said. They were developing well. filters for washing machines, and now they're going to turn to designing a similar system for tumble dryers or for dryers. 
It's a gigantic worldwide problem to get right. clothing manufacturers to ch change the way they well, make clothes. Well, they have to clothes. stop using plastic. And yeah. that means they have to stop using fossil fuels to manufacture clothing. And the fossil fuel industry is not going to sit still. No, the fossil that. fuel industry is, you know, the fossil fuel industry is looking at the decrease in the use of oil and gas for transportation for transportation and for energy, right? Yeah. And so now they're looking at other markets. And of course, they already have their, their finger in all these markets. It's the clothing markets, the plastic market, and so on and so on. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Big worldwide problems. We're talking about mostly fleece things, We're right? talking about polyester. Fleeces are probably one of the worst. Because the fibers come the, loose the easily? The fibers come loose easily. And, and, and because they're so widespread. I mean, manufacturers are making fleece and people are buying. I mean, how many millions and millions and millions of fleece jackets and vests and whatever, even fleece blankets and stuff, were given for Christmas presents. And these are all made and from oil. They're all made from oil, absolutely. Polyester. I don't, I don't all, think people have any idea. All these synthetic fabrics are made from fossil fuels, oil and gas. People have no idea that no. That's, that, no. that sweater they just put on is made from oil. No, or plastic, because okay. that's not oil. I mean, it's, oil is a feedstock for plastic, right? Right. So, okay. yeah. All right. Thanks, Patty. Oh, you're welcome. Something is burning and churning inside me Sure that love.
A future that looks like the night certainly isn't right. That's a brand new, never heard before song by our friend and singer Liz Simmons, a song we wrote together and which we hope will be out soon and available to everyone on the various streaming services. Today, we're really excited to welcome to our Green Street show, Mr. Peter Montague. Peter has his doctorate in American history, but has spent his career as a prolific and award-winning journalist. His work has appeared in The Ecologist, Environment Magazine, Environmental Justice, Huffington Post, The Nation, New Solutions, and The Saturday Review, among others. Peter has co-authored two books on toxic heavy metals and recently has been focused on carbon capture and storage and environmental justice. He is a fellow with the Science and Environmental Health Network, and we're happy to have him as our guest today on Green Street. We started off our conversation asking Peter how he ended up following this particular career path. Here's how he put it. I think I was born with a justice gene. Um, Since I was a little kid, I've seen and been horrified by injustice everywhere I look. And I didn't know what to do about this for a very long time until I was in college. And I went to Antioch College, and a friend of mine from Antioch, a man named Sheldon Novick, when he left Antioch, went to work for Barry Commoner. And they started, they were publishing a magazine called Scientist and Citizen. Barry Commoner and Margaret Mead, the famous anthropologist, were active in the Association for the Advancement of Science. Mm-hmm. And um, they had formed a committee to try to convince scientists that they had a citizen obligation, that they had special knowledge, and that they needed to make that special knowledge accessible to the public. Because in a democracy, the public needs to be informed if they're going to make good decisions. And science is very hard to understand often. It has its own vocabulary and it's it's highly mathematical very often. And so people can't understand it. Ordinary people can't understand it. So Commoner and, and Margaret Mead were pressing for scientists to make their work understandable. And I decided that was something that I could do. And that and that uh, after I'd, I I started reading a scientist and citizen, and then it, it turned into Environment Magazine. And throughout the 60s, I was reading Environment Magazine. So I got an education about environment, about the natural world and what we're doing to it, just because my friend was the editor of this magazine, and I was interested in what he had to say. Well, Earth Day happened along about 1970, and I was, uh, I was ready I had already started a citizens group uh, in, I was uh, in college at that, to- at that time in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, getting a PhD in American studies, American history. And um, I felt that citizen activism was the only way to counter what was happening to the natural world. If cit- I thought that if citizens really understood what, what big corporations were doing to the world, just basically destroying it, as we now know from global warming or global heating, as some people call it, uh, climate change. Big corporations were destroying the world. And the only counter that I could imagine to that would be citizens getting informed and then taking action, taking coordinated action. And so I started an organization in Albuquerque called uh, New Mexico Citizens for Clean Air and Water. 
and uh, with some scientists from the Los Alamos uh, Scientific Laboratory, uh, somewhat ironically, since that was the place where the first Mm. nuclear weapons were developed. Sure. But there were scientists there who cared about the natural world. I guess they were able to partition their lives between nuclear stuff and trying to do something more positive for the world. In any case, they joined the organization and gave it scientific credibility and did a lot of really good work um, on behalf of the environment in New Mexico. Hmm. I had become concerned about nuclear power more than anything else because it had the uh, nuclear weapons and then nuclear power because once you get nuclear power, it's not very far from there to start making your own nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. And so the proliferation of nuclear power around the world was essentially the proliferating nuclear weapons. And I became concerned about that as a young person with with uh, with very young children and, you know, a long future ahead of me and an even longer future ahead of my kids. I was really upset, angry uh, that the, the powers that be were risking the future of the whole planet. For what? For power, for money, for trade. It, it, it never made sense to me. Mm-hmm. Why, should, why would we risk the entire future of civilization and perhaps even of humanity to grow the economy? It just didn't make sense. Yeah. So Barry Commoner and, and Margaret Mead convinced me that democratic decision-making was essential, that if citizens were cut out of the decision-making process, we would almost certainly get bad decisions. When small groups of people make decisions behind closed doors, they don't have any good feedback as to whether it's a good decision or not. And so they can make bad decisions, catastrophically bad decisions, that they don't know are wrong until something really bad happens, as has happened around the world with nuclear power. Yeah, they were ahead of their time, I think, you know, yes, they, this, yes, they were this idea yeah. that citizens need to be involved in these decisions to. Well, I mean, we've gotten to the point now where it's pretty much corporate, you know, a lot of these decisions are being made by corporations, we have a risk benefit analysis that's done. And of course, the risks always fall on people and the benefits always fall on corporations. So, you know, Margaret and Barry were ahead of their time. And I wish more people had listened to them back then. Yes, absolutely. So when I began looking at the decision-making process, I came upon cost-benefit analysis. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I spent uh, actually several years, many years really, analyzing cost-benefit analysis and how it is used. It was chosen by our federal government as a favored decision-making technique. But here's how it works. First of all, it puts decisions in the hands of experts. Uh, Cost-benefit analysis is conducted by economists and other experts who have special knowledge. Second of all, it's numerical, and that cuts out a great, a huge swath of the public right there. Most people can't make heads or tails out of a a cost-benefit analysis because it's got a specialized vocabulary, and it's basically a numerical analysis. It's a number cruncher's game. And 
if you can't understand it, you don't know whether the final decision is a good decision or not. You're, you're left to take it that the experts wouldn't lie to you or wouldn't make a mistake, which of course is not true. Experts do lie and they do make mistakes. You're listening to Green Street, the environmental health show with Patty and Doug Wood. And our guest today is award-winning environmental author, Peter Montague. Well, you've also got the, the obvious problem that the risks may not be evident for a long, for a while. Well, the, for sure. you know, the benefits, you can forecast kind of what the benefits are. You can do your, you know, your calculations of what size the market is and how much you're going to sell. And so you can do that, but you can't know what's out there, right? Yeah, you don't, you don't really know what the risks are. That's true. And we don't know whether those, those long-term health impacts or long-term injuries to the, to the planet are, you know, because it takes years, uh, yep. you know, for this, for some of these things to manifest yep. themselves. So those, those things are not taken into consideration when you're looking at the risk benefit. Right, right. A good example is the uh, introduction of lead into gasoline in the 1920s. Mm. It took 50 years before we understood that we had contaminated every city in America with tons and tons and tons of lead in finely divided particles that mm. you could breathe in mm. and that lead is toxic to uh, the human brain. It took 50 years to understand that. Right, right. And then it, and it took an enormous sacrifice on the part of Herb Needleman, who wasn't the only one, but who was the leader on this. I mean, he basically sacrificed his, his career. Absolutely. The corporados, as I like to call them, ganged up on him and made mm -hmm. his life miserable. They hired what I like to call biostitutes, uh, <laughs> bi biologists, and other biologists and other scientists who will say anything for money. Mm -hmm. And they beat up on, on Herb Needleman and, and took him to court and uh, tried mm -hmm. to get his publications revoked and yada, yada, yada. They, uh, it was, mm. It's a horrible story in itself. And cost-benefit analysis is easily rigged because most people can't understand it. Even many scientists can't understand it if it's done for another field that is not their field of expertise. That's right. And so a few numbers can be changed, a few assumptions can be changed, and that changes the result. And so it's a process that is subject to political manipulation. It is not a scientific process for making decisions. It is a political process for making decisions, masquerading as science. But unfortunately, it is our federal governments and many state governments, probably all state governments actually, way of making very important decisions about uh, new technologies and about the future that we're creating for young people and our, and our children. Well, just to play devil's advocate for a moment, uh, Peter, how else would we expect local governments or any governmental entity to make a decision if it's not cost benefit? What's the other option? The other option is to set up a very public process where you identify scientists who are qualified to speak on whatever the issue is that is before you. And you bring in citizens, uh, particularly citizens who represent groups of citizens. Mm -hmm. And you put them together and you conduct a process in which the scientists lay out in easy to understand terms what's involved, what the unknowns are, 
what the possible downsides are, what the benefits might be, how big this thing could, how bad it could go if it goes wrong, and then let the decision be, be made by the group, and then let that group, with its recommendation, be made to the governmental policymakers who then make the decision. And if the governmental policymakers decide to override that citizens scientists committee, then they've got to explain themselves. And then they've got to run for office again after having <laughs> after having yeah. explained themselves. <laughs> yeah, right. So more democracy is the answer to almost every problem. You know, for, for decades, uh, as, as a journalist, I traveled around the country and to Mexico and Canada as well and attended hundreds of public meetings where citizens were being lectured to by lawyers and scientists and citizens were trying to understand what is this new garbage incinerator going to do to the air? Uh, what is this new lead smelter going to do to the cows that I'm uh, that I'm grazing downwind? Um, what is this nuclear power plant going to do to birth defects in my county? And I became so impressed by the wisdom of the general public. You know, I was I grew up in a Republican uh, elitist family, and I was taught from in in school and until I got into college and figured out things for myself, that the public was really the great unwashed. Well, no, that is absolutely not true. The public is the source of all wisdom. And when bad decisions are made, it is the public that will understand that those decisions were made, were made badly and were, and were bad decisions. Democracy is self-correcting in the same way that science is self-correcting. Scientists can make mistakes just the way political decision-makers can make mistakes. But if those mistakes are subject to peer review by other scientists, eventually the errors are found and the truth is, is agreed upon. That's how science works. People put out their ideas other scientists look at it and say, well, wait, wait a minute, you forgot about this, or you made a numerical error here. If you fix that, here's another conclusion that should be drawn. And eventually, we reach the truth about scientific information. The same is true about democracy. Decision makers, they're only human, they're going to make mistakes, and they're going to make bad decisions. But if the public looks at it long enough and lives with it long enough and reacts to it long enough, the decision will be corrected. That's how democracy works. That's why dictatorships are a loser proposition, because there's no opposition to look at the decisions that have been made and, and provide corrective information. So, so how do you... <laughs> um, how do you feel about what's going on in Washington? I mean, you know, I, I feel like these agencies that were created and are designed to protect public health and to protect our environment, especially our, our vital natural resources, air and water and food supply and so on, are being basically run by the industry. I mean, that it's the, the same industries that these agencies are supposed to be regulating are basically running those agencies. Uh, and 
it's really, really difficult. I mean, I just wrote an article, you know, about about the EPA and their their stand on glyphosate and the amount of glyphosate or you know Roundup um, that's in our food supply. You know, they're the only ones that you know in the world that are basically saying glyphosate is not a carcinogen; it's perfectly safe. Moving on. I well, mean, of course, I, okay. our agencies are not protecting us anymore. How do you how do you how do you go back and 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 fix that? People would have to turn out and vote. About 80% of the public, sometimes it's 65%, sometimes it's 90%, sometimes it's 78%, but large majorities of the American people want a safe environment for themselves and their children. Yes. They also want decent jobs. They also want decent minimum income. We are a liberal nation. Most of the things that the American public wants are good things. We are, we are good people altogether. But starting in the 1950s, in response to the Supreme Court decision to integrate public schools, a small group of Southern politicians decided that the federal government had too much power. And by 1980, they were powerful enough, they had influenced the Republican Party enough to elect Ronald Reagan, who announced in his inaugural, government is the problem. And that was the ideology that took hold and has been aggressively advanced since then, that our problem is our government, uh, not corporations. And now, year after year after year, government budgets have been cut, except course, the military, but the Internal Revenue Service doesn't collect the taxes that it, that it knows it deserves to get under law because the Internal Revenue Service has been shrunk down so small that it's ineffective. So that, that prevents government co from collecting the revenue that it needs to function. Government has been shrunk, defanged, almost eliminated in many cases. And Republicans have repeatedly put into power, put into government offices, people who don't even believe in the agencies that they are put in charge of. And so you have people whose, whose ideology is to destroy the federal government to the extent that they can, any way they can, cut its funds, put people in power who don't believe in government, make regulations that don't do anything, eliminate regulations that do do something. Government has been made ineffective. And of course, people see that and they don't really understand that this has been a, this has been a purposeful strategy that's been carried out by the Republican Party starting in 1954 and 1955 and really getting going in 1980. And President Trump is the final result. Um, you know, he, he perfectly is perfectly willing to destroy government. He announces that the goal is to destroy government. Um, and he's doing it by lying to people and organizing people to defy the Constitution and, and to undermine democracy. 
I am very, very worried about the elections of 2022 and 2024. Uh, it could go very, very badly. And the only real solution for this is for good-hearted people to get to the ballot box. The, the vote is our salvation. It's our only salvation. And uh, Republicans have spent the last couple of years making it as difficult as possible for good-hearted people with good values to get their vote counted. And we just, we just need to turn out in massive numbers and overwhelm them and take control of the government with a mandate to rule and then rebuild the federal government. It's in shambles. It's, it, it's been shattered. It's a, it's, a, it's a skeleton of its former self, and it must be rebuilt with, uh, with talent and expertise and funding to take on the massive problems that we face. Peter, you got my vote. Are you running? <laughs> no, I'm not. I, I am not a. I am not a politician. I'm. I'm a. I'm a writer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how did we get? I mean, we're going off subject here, off of Green Street. But how do we get good people to run, given the toxicity of, of politics? I mean, who wants to run these days when you're, you know, that your opposition is going to do everything they can, throw everything they can at you. You know, Herb Needleman experienced probably what it would be like if somebody, you know, with a with a moral yeah. compass began to run for office. I mean, yeah. yeah, it's true. There are a lot of good people out there, but how how can we convince them to run? That's a, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I know that a lot of particularly young women are running. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the thing that we can do is support them. Mm -hmm. uh, we can we can send them. When they ask you for five bucks, send them five bucks if, if, you can, if you have the five bucks to spare. Write them a letter telling them you really think they're great. Tell them, tell them that if, they were, if you were in their district, you, you would vote for them. Uh, encourage them in every way you can. And maybe get involved in the Democratic Party so that the Democratic Party understands that it needs to be doing this. It mm -hmm. needs to be bringing up a bunch of young people particularly young women, to run for office. Yeah. That's, that's the answer. I, and I, I don't know how to make that happen, but it's, it's, within the, it's within the power of the Democratic Party to do this. Mm -hmm. And so they've got to be pressured to understand the importance of this. They seem to be all over the place. Uh, of course, they are a, they're not an ideological party. They're, they are a party that's been cobbled together from interest groups. Mm -hmm. And each interest group wants its issue to be in the forefront. But democracy, it's, democracy itself is now imperiled. And the Democratic Party needs to really, really get behind saving democracy rather right. than doing anything else specific. Saving democracy, because democracy is really up for grabs in this next four years. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with you 100 percent. I just, you know, I really feel like somebody has got to get into that Democratic Party and just say, look, you know, you've got to have the same you've got to have the same strategies that the Republicans have. You don't have to say what they're saying. You have to say what you believe in. You have to have these sound bites that everybody repeats. So that you that you so come across to the public as a cohesive 
party that wants good for the for the American people, yeah. wants, you know, just good education and good health care and and so on for everybody. I mean, but they can't they can't do that. They just don't they don't have that same discipline that the Republicans have. I mean, they are so disciplined. And, you know, you you hear that 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 series of sound bites and goes over and over and you just can't you can't escape it. Democrats have to do the same thing, but their sound bites have to be about about saving our democracy. The vote is our salvation. I love that. What you said before. It's really, really true. Yeah. And who's going to get in there and do it? It's interesting. You know, Peter, we had on our show a few months ago, a fellow by the name of Brian Munch, who has written a book about how the structure of America's corporations exists in such a way that it makes it almost impossible for a corporation to do the right thing for the right reasons. Um, in other words, they're, they're set up for profit alone, and they depend on government to be the kind of mediator, to be the to run interference between the public, which doesn't have the time or the ability necessarily to follow every issue and and weigh in uh, on everything, and corporations whose job it is to make money. And he really makes a point about if we don't reform the way corporations are, given our busy lives, given our shrinking government, then you know then we're going to be in trouble. Do you subscribe to that idea that that maybe we may, might have to look at corporate structure itself as a way to deal with some of these issues? I absolutely agree with that. The, the corporate structure that seems to promise to fix those problems is worker ownership, worker co-ops, mm. of which mm-hmm. there are thousands and thousands functioning in the United States today and around the world, actually. A worker co-op doesn't have to pay a dividend every year, doesn't have to make excess profits so that it can pay its shareholders. It just has to stay in business. It just has to pay its wages to its workers. And the workers run the company and make the decisions about how much they will be paid. And they understand what it takes to make the thing survive. So I think that worker co-ops Uh, or even consumer co-ops, but the cooperative form of business, which does not necessarily entail outside investors at all, is the way to go. And I think that many corporations are beginning to understand that they are destructive of the natural world. And they are at least, I mean, the people within the corporations some of them may regret this really, really because their kids are beginning to regret it. And at the at the dinner yeah. table at home, they're beginning to hear, hey, hey, dad, hey, mom, you know, your corporation is destroying the world. They're destroying my future. Let's let's do something about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so many of us are so concerned about our kids and our grandchildren at this point. I mean, I just, you know, I look at my those little innocent faces and I look at them, you know, learning all these things so earnestly and, you know, their American history. I mean, Doug is is a, is the American history teacher for our 11-year-old who is being homeschooled. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, he's so, he's just so careful about learning everything and, you know, reading and, and he's genuinely upset about, about global warming and, and why did we do this? Why did we let it get so bad? How did it go so far? 
with nobody stepping in and saying, wait a minute, look what we're doing. You know, that's, how- a, that's a good point. Um, I looked into this and I have a memorandum, a, a, a six page letter written by a scientist who was employed by ExxonMobil. This letter was written to the executive committee of ExxonMobil in 1978. And this scientist told the executive committee of ExxonMobil in 1978 that global warming was real, that carbon dioxide released by oil and natural gas was the source of the problem, and that by by 2020, whole countries would have their agricultural systems destroyed by global warming. Mm. And, and we're and we're seeing that. And we are seeing that because because of yeah. drought and because of yeah. flooding. Yeah. And the response of the management st- uh, structure of ExxonMobil was to acknowledge the problem and then to lie about it for 40 years. Right. They really should be brought up to the world court for crimes against humanity. Crimes against humanity. Crimes against yeah. humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As, as, and some of the pharmaceutical companies and the chemical industries and the pesticide. Yeah, there's a long, long line of people that there's, need to be. There's a long line of people that should be marched, marched up there. It's, yeah, uh, yes. I think that if the Democrats can win a few elections in the next six years and really pay attention to their base, and expand their base to include many, many young people, this thing could be turned around within a few years. It is not, think, in, it is not inevitable that we're going to destroy the, the planet, but that's the direction we're headed now. Yeah, and I think you're on to this. I think it has to be young people. It has to be new and fresh blood that's in politics if we're going to have any, any chance here. And I think there are a lot of them. I think there are a lot of young people who have been watching this unfold and thinking, wow, you know, (laughs) there will be no future. We will have no children, you know, Uh, you know, let's get involved. So another thing that that could make a difference is the social justice and environmental justice and the traditional environmental and conservative organizations could make a huge difference if they would get out of their individual silos for just one day every week and focus on democracy, focus on democratic decision-making and figure out how they can work together to enhance their power to advance democratic decision-making. There's a tremendous amount of money, skill, talent, and work possibilities involved in all those movements, but they're not in, in any way engaged with each other. Every, every organization could establish a named position called ambassador, and that individual within that organization could be the ambassador to other organizations that they know about and that they learn about and to make a phone call to them or visit them or have a Zoom call with them and talk about one day a week, 
let's get together on democracy, because if we fail on that issue, we're going to fail on every issue that we care about. It could make a huge difference. Hmm. Hmm. That's a neat idea. I like that. Peter, I want to talk a little bit about journalism. You've been a journalist since the 1960s. You talk a little bit about how you see the profession of journalism. Are you concerned that what appears to, you know, from the outside that the attention span of most adults has been shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Uh, and I worry about how people obtain their understanding of the world. Yes, um, no doubt about it. Facebook has been a really destructive influence on and, and, and Twitter. They've been a really destructive influence on democracy. I started to look into this and to develop um, a, a, a plan for at least conceptually what could be changed about the internet as we know it to make it a, a better place. And here's one idea. There could be two internets. There could be a, an internet where everything that goes on is subjected to fact-checking. That would be the, the uh, smaller, more truthful internet. And then there would be the Wild West internet. <laughs> and anybody who wanted to, to could get on there and say or do, say anything they wanted or put up any photograph they wanted uh, with, within, you know, within the, uh, the laws that we have uh, to protect individuals from, from attack. Um, and, and maybe you'd have to pay a dollar a year to participate in the Wild West internet, and that would fund the curated internet, the one where a, a staff, a, a very large staff of, of fact checkers had been hired to make sure that what's being put out on the curated internet holds up under scrutiny. Another idea is that nobody should be able to participate in the internet anonymously. Uh, there are countries in the world where you have to identify yourself in order to get onto the internet. Um, yeah. and, and some of them are democratic countries. And it seems like a healthy thing to me. Uh, hiding, hiding behind anonymity gives people the power to, you know, to do crazy things mm -hmm. and, to say, and to say crazy things. And we've seen, we see it every day in, in voluminous uh, corrupting messaging across the internet. If, if, you, if your real name were attached to everything that you had to say on the internet, I think people would be more careful about what they had to say. Now, not everybody, but it, it would cut down the craziness quite a bit. I really think that in the next, uh, in the next couple of years, we really need to just press on, get out and vote, get out and vote. No matter what issue you care about, get out yeah. and vote. Because if we don't do that, we're going to become uh, we're going to be, become overwhelmed by neo-fascists who are just itching to take over the country, shut down the media, and and um, essentially eliminate democracy in America. That's what that's what we're facing. And if that happens, all of the issues that we care about will continue to be made by smaller and smaller elites who are not accountable and who will have no corrective outside of their own little circle. And so they're going to make huge mistakes with nuclear power, with pesticides, with global warming, you name it. 
they're going to wreck the planet because they are not uh, allowing democratic decision making and feedback as to what are the consequences of their decisions. Uh, we are headed for a right wing coup and authoritarian government, and it will be the end of us. You've been listening to Green Street, the environmental health show with Patty and Doug Wood, and our guest today was award-winning environmental author Peter Montague. If you missed any part of today's show, you can always hear it again at GreenStreetRadio.com, where you can also sign up for our news alerts and send us comments about the show. That's going to do it for today's show. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street. Until then, be safe, be well. We'll see you next time.